Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the PropTech Growth Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwin Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales, and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. I'm actually a pioneer, I think, in certain ways. Do you want to go through that with us? Yeah, my background and I guess focus has been financial services for about 30 years. I've worked both in big banks in senior roles, doing some interesting stuff there, but also in startups. In the startup space, around about 96, 97, I put some of the first banks online. I put the world's first insurance company online. We did multi-channel voting application, which I presented on tomorrow's the tech show that isn't on anymore but at the time it was exciting for me because i watched it growing up and then i also was responsible for a single customer view strategy at lloyd's so i came up with the idea or the concept instead of having these silos of data we wanted to have one view and then also with the beginning of the web and stuff i looked at banking as a service or at that time i called it franchising banks but today the banking as a service is quite big shift in the industry but at the time banks felt very much that they wanted to own the customers or that they did own the customer and to be fair that probably was true at the time but i think things changed with the internet and that's where i've focused much more in the last 20 years the first startup was really a services company we created a model of business marketing technology we put banks and insurance companies online and the second company was a tech company where we created a low-code platform where companies could develop mobile and web applications without writing code. And the reason we did that was because I could see the shift from the work that we did with internet banking. I knew that most large organizations had hundreds of thousands of screens that had been developed in Windows or other operating systems, and that they would shift to the browser. So based on that, we said, you don't want to hire zillions of developers. You want to get a productivity tool to help you that migration. So we create this platform, Edge Connect, and then we ran that company successfully for 12 years. In the end, sold it to a big core banking vendor, Temenos. And Nos basically was their chief digital officer. We rolled out the platform across all of their product set, thousands of screens, maybe 15,000 screens were migrated onto our platform. But I did their digital strategy and their digital strategy basically was taking that huge monolithic core banking system and splitting into two. It was like talking to a bank. Why should we do this? Because the bigger banks already have done it and the smaller banks should do it because when you tie up the customer and your banking engine, you don't control all of the products. Therefore, the customer data gets split into lots of different islands because for every product system, you've got a customer record. Yeah, we seem to be doing okay without it. I'm like, I think things are going to change. And then 2014, the white paper on open banking came out and I said, this is the reason why it's going to change because when banks have to open up their data, we're going to see a lot more innovation in what we call distribution, the selling of financial services and products versus manufacturing, which is making the products like accounts and loans and stuff like that. And so we'll see this bifurcation or this split where we'll see a ton more people trying to own the customer relationship 
and consolidation on the banking product side of things. And if we look at what we have today, where we've got zillions of fintechs and neos at the front end doing distribution, and with banking as a service, we're going to see consolidation. And we are starting to see that anyway. So my prediction of 2014 is coming true. And then part of my theory on this separation was very much about the distribution changing. And there I said, what's clear is that with the web, things are changing in terms of what people need to address. It's no longer about selling a product, but owning a customer journey. And the terminals team said, well, yeah, can you give me some examples? And I said, look, I'm a landlord and my bank gives me an account that I pay money into or pay money out of and a mortgage. That's all they do. But as a landlord, my journey is do the gas certificate every year, do the electricity certificates every five years, collect the rent, make sure the rent's being paid on time, count for any expenses, separate capital and income expenses, do my tax return. They're having none of that. So imagine if I started a new bank that kind of focused on landlords. Firstly, there's four and a half million of them. So a nice customer segment to address. 70% of them only have one property. So are pretty much not using software to do anything. So there's a huge gap here on helping landlords. And sure enough, a few years later, Hammett came along and they're helping landlords with this kind of problem. I saw the same issue for households and said, banks give you an account, give you a mortgage, try to sell you insurance, but they're very bad at it because all they want to do is push you product. They're not really helping you as a homeowner. And so we created Ask Homey really because we felt the households were being underserved and what everyone needed to do was to register with lots of different services, whether it's trusted trader, my builder, looking to buy a house, insurance company, switching companies, et cetera, et cetera. You're giving your personal details, home details and payment details to lots of third parties. And so Ask Home is there to bridge that gap where you register with us and we pass your details on to the third parties that you want to interact with in the ecosystem. So that you've got one place you can manage all your property data, as well as your identity to do with a property. We're smoothening the journey for that homeowner. And that's me in a long nutshell. I heard this. I don't think I've ever spoken to you about this. Did you sell your house in crypto? No, I didn't. What actually happened was when I bought my house, when I moved, I had spookily good timing in that. We need to deliquidate everything to be able to afford the house that we're getting. It was like the last move to get a bigger place or a nicer place before thinking about downsizing. Around about September last year, sorry, the year before, I sold everything and I only invest in tech and I had some crypto. So I sold all my tech stocks and I sold all my crypto and basically both those markets tanked. And so then I've got all of my money tied up in this house now, which actually is, has been a blessing really, but yeah. Wow. Yeah, dodged a few bullets there. Been looking at the crypto side of things in terms of property transactions and stuff like that. And as a currency, it's debatable, but as a method for exchanging value, the most underestimated thing is about having an NFT if you are hung. Because if you look at the amount of property fraud, it's not a huge amount, but it's still sizable. And that people are selling homes that they don't own, but an NFT would solve that because it's proof of ownership and that's immutable. So. I'm surprised that Land Reg haven't really moved towards that route. So, you're surprised that Land Registry are behind the times. What's their motivator? 
to reduce property fraud. I don't know that they're motivated to do that, unfortunately. I'd like to think so. But also, I've gone digital. But essentially, what that means is all that old paperwork has been scanned into a PDF and stored somewhere. It hasn't turned into data yet. And what they could be doing is saving the industry huge amount of hours and preventing fraud and making home buying and moving a lot easier by digitizing not only the registry, but helping with the digitization of the transaction. And I'm currently involved with a working party in the home buying selling group where we have started that process of digitizing the transaction. And the benefits are absolutely clear. Some of the early changes in customer journeys just are going to be amazing for home buyers and sellers in the future in that today you sign up and somebody advertises your house, you see it on Zoopla, et cetera. But that's about it. Everything else is behind the scenes, hidden behind emails and phone calls and paper trails that it's really difficult to track. And what's happening now is by digitizing this stuff, you can track and trace the whole thing and know exactly where you are. And some of this data is being brought to life out of the paper into proper visualizations. So I'm quite excited that there is some change, but it still begs the question that why hasn't the government done more on its own side of things? Like not only with Langridge, but we think about digital identity. At the moment, we're well behind a number of other countries in our progress towards digital identity. I know it's complex. It's a choice between what some countries have done with centralization of identity, like China and India, versus the UK, where we're having almost like a decentralized approach and you could have an identity for your nationality, aka your passport, another one for home ownership, another one for your ability to drive a car and stuff. But where are we with these things? Identity is going to be core to a lot of transformation, not only in financial services, but also in the property side of things. And what's interesting is that what used to be separate verticals, they're all starting to overlap much more heavily than we have done in the past. So you're starting to see prop techs that merge or become like fintechs. So they're handling the financial aspects of property, whether it's zero deposits or helping you save up for a mortgage, et cetera. There's a lot of activity that is difficult to pick out, whether it's a prop tech or a fintech, but really it's a prop fintech, you know. And I think, like you said, there is some movement there on one of the other podcasts we're doing. We're speaking to Marie Walker. I've spoken to her a few times. And uh, she was, I just feel that open banking, when it's ready, I still don't think it's ready. And I've been looking at it for the last 10 years or whenever it came in and thinking, okay, soon it'll be ready. So clunky. And every mortgage company that I've either worked for or run, I'd be like, okay, is it time? Do I press the button on this? And for me, it's just not quite there. And whether that's because we're in the UK or whatever, it's just not right. Just not quite there yet. But I think that should cover things like obviously anti-money laundering is massive at the moment in the property side of things a lot of fines going on i think open banking just opens up so many doors to again that transaction and the speed of transaction and everything from a financial point of view from mortgage point of view all the way through the process list has been able to see everything from the get-go i think it's going to be a really good thing it's just when is the time to push the button on it that's the thing for me I think the most underestimated thing is for SMEs, really. I now take it for granted that I don't need to give my statements because my accountant has access to my account and can see the transactions. All I'm having to provide now is the invoices that match those transactions. But before you had to send in your statements and stuff like that as well, and 
it's a painful process being chased for paperwork all the time. But now it's all done seamlessly in the background. The thing that's a little bit annoying, which is being addressed, is that you have to give this kind of regular permission to access your account. Now, in the future, you'll be able to say, look, give this permission indefinitely or give this permission for the next six months, 12 months, whatever you feel comfortable with. So you're not having to do that on a every three month basis at the moment. I think also we shouldn't be aware of open banking. What we should see is just financial services being made easier, payments being made easier and other services being made easier for us. And it depends on whether you leverage those services. If you use things like Snoop or other money managers, I find those a lot easier to get in and out or check my balance, see if a transaction has gone through than to use my own internet banking service because I've got so many hoops to jump through just to get in, let alone the experience once you are in. That kind of stuff is taken for granted, but not everyone is comfortable with giving a third party access to their financial data. So that will take a bit of time. And what I've learned, I guess, in my almost 25, 30 years of being involved with the internet is that there are a few things that get adopted very quickly. Internet banking for banks. I put them in banks online in 97, but it took 15 to 20 years for banks to have more than half their customers using the internet. And everyone talked about mobile, what a storm. I put the first mobile bank online in 2000. And it took banks 15 years to get more than 50% of their customers using mobile banking. We always focus, especially in the tech industry, that we have to drive innovation, but that's not the challenge. Innovation isn't a challenge. We have lots of ideas. The thing that fails us is customer adoption and driving customer adoption on scale. What we'll see is tons of good ideas. But the timing wasn't right. And then lots of us in the tech industry will say, oh, yeah, I had that idea like 15 years ago. I had that idea like 10 years ago, whatever. The important thing is having the idea and knowing what will allow it to scale. The mobile banking that we launched in 2000, mobile phones were still very clunky. We didn't have smartphones. The bandwidth was rubbish. And even I said to the CEO of the bank, look, we've done a trial of online voting. And there's only one graphic of a tip. And the app is really simple. You go in your four candidates and you say, I want that one. That's all it's doing. And the experience for me is really bad. I'm having to go to a local golf course where it's up on a hill and I know exactly I can get full bars. And then it still takes me 30 seconds to get one simple task of voting. I said, it's not right for banking. I said, oh no, this is going to change things. Bank in a pocket, blah, blah, blah. And because the experience wasn't right, it didn't take off. It did take off around about 2007 when the iPhone was around. So the experience was better, but the iPhone got the timing absolutely right. It made sure that the screen experience, touch screens were usable, but the screen quality resolution was high. At that time, memory prices for phones had come down. So the cost of a phone although quite high, was still affordable. And that mobile broadband had started to be rolled out quite nationally. So it took five or six things before mobile banking really had everything it needed to take off. And so the timing is really important. And, and that's what we tend to get wrong is to understand what are the things that will drive mass adoption. What, what most of us think is like this innovation, oh, that's so cool. Everyone needs it. But that's not always the case. So with that in mind, I'd really love to know, because you touched on these other things that are necessary 
for innovation to actually move forward and be adopted. You've talked a little bit about user experience and you've mentioned data as well, people feeling comfortable sharing their data. Are those the two key things that you feel are the barriers to adoption or are there other things that perhaps you could cover? Certainly standardization helps. In America, we had access to banking data anyway through screen scraping, et cetera. But they were almost like backdoor methods of getting at somebody else's data. What made open banking move faster was that the UK had banned screen scraping, but it was clear that innovation would be created by opening up the data. So we knew that. And it's only because that open banking came along and mandated it for the big banks. And then APIs were created in a standard way that allowed lots of people to start to adopt them, that it really started to take off. And it will still take more time before we'll see much wider spread. But there are hundreds of millions of transactions going through an open banking. That's not a failure. It's actually quite a big success story in my books. But it will take time for everyone to get value from it. So I think data is absolutely key. And one of the things that holds us back in the property world is the digitization of data. There's huge volumes of data. Like in Ask Comey, there are 10,000 data points, which is 10 times the volume that Facebook has on you as an individual. And we know the power that Facebook holds just by knowing our personal data. Imagine if we can unleash the data on our property. There's going to be stuff that is phenomenal in terms of being able to help households based off the data that we capture. Once it's properly digitized, once we stop sending bits of paper around, we stop communicating via email, and we start transacting and understanding the information inside a document. In comparison to open banking, the stuff that the home buying selling group is doing is that transformational journey is about taking the stuff out of PDFs and paper documents, bespoke workflows and portals and in emails and allowing data to interact between parties in a safe and secure way, but in a way that also machines can understand the information that's being transmitted. So now if you take what's happening with things like chat GPT on the AI side of things, and you apply it to a document that's now being digitized. You can start to see that a lot of conveyancing will disappear as these machines take over. It doesn't mean the end of all jobs. It just means that the drudgery of going through a document end to end. And if you imagine like the machine, all it's doing is taking the highlights and saying, these bits are the bits that you should focus on. That will make conveyancer's life so much easier. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll probably also... need to edit this out. But I would be quite happy to work with a machine instead of a conveyancing lawyer after the experience I had, because it was literally just a person sat there back and forth with documents, not actually doing anything. We just don't know whether it's sitting in their inbox, it's sitting with the search companies, with mm. the buyer or the sellers, the opposite party solicitors. We just don't have that side of it. But by digitizing it, we not only bring transparency, but we allow people to understand what's going on. I think there's a case for, with conveyances, I think it seems anyway that they dip into a case, do something on it, and then put it to the bottom of the pile because they've done something on that, and then a month later, dip back into it. I was just thinking about this. It would actually be quite interesting if us as consumers could do that to see where our case was. I don't mean like a necessarily a progression chart or something like that, but if we can see all the documents in the case, and then we can yeah. prompt the conveyancer that actually, I think everything's there now that we need, 
get it back to the top of your pile and let's get this done. But without the 20 phone calls to find out, but just having that sort of holistic view of everything so that you can not necessarily check up on what they're doing, but you can see what you need to see when you want to see it. And it's things like Pit Vault and some others that are around at the moment where they're trying to get all that information up front so that the buyer yeah. and the seller can see that before it actually goes and gets lost with the conveyancer. And that's, I think, a good thing now, but I think it has to move on to the conveyancer side for it to 100% work properly. And I think for me, again, we'll probably have to edit this out, but the law society need to start doing something proactive. And so do the government. And, you know, it takes everybody to get something to work and it does take time, like you've said, but now is the time for this to really start to kick off and get that adoption. With the adoption, obviously, the Home Buy and Sellers Group came out with the BASPI. And again, it's trying to get adoption for that. It's going to take time, unfortunately, because it would be a lot easier for everyone if people took it up, but it is what it is at the moment. I think there are direct comparisons with open banking because the banks wouldn't have adopted open banking had it not been regulated. And the regular had said, you've got to do it. And then said, okay, we told you, you've got to do it. Now there's a deadline. And in the banks, part for them was that what's in it for us? We open up our data. These guys take hold of the relationship, what's in it for us. And it's taken them a long time to actually understand that they can't compete on customer journeys. If you've got small organizations that target a niche customer segment, they're always going to be able to do it better. The best thing is not to see them as competition, but as a vehicle for you to sell your product to them. And this is the whole banking as a service model that says, oh, actually, we don't need to own the customer relationship. Because these guys are going to do all this value-added stuff. Going back to the landlord bit, they're going to send the reminders, help you split income and capital expenses, blah, blah, blah. We can't build use cases like that for every different customer segment people can imagine. So it's better to partner with these people, provide them our banking products underneath the hood of their service. And that kind of thing needs to happen in the property world where we don't need to worry about what will happen to my conveyancing company if somebody else wraps our service. It doesn't matter. as long as you can get that to as many wrappers as possible, then you're still going to be in demand, but you'll actually get more business. Going back to what you said a few minutes ago about timing, and I, with my fintech and people have said it to me, I was just a bit early because there was like Habito, Trussell, Mojo and Hooch, who was mine, and they all had millions and millions of pounds. And I'm not saying that's why they're still around. However, that is why they're still around and I'm not. But if you take COVID out of the equation, I've done it a couple of years later, or we would have been able to bootstrap it for a bit longer because we could see again more push because people start to adopt it more whereas we came out when this thing had just happened and because we couldn't compete either from an advertising perspective or anything like that but we still had enough customers who were interested enough to do it and i think obviously with all startups it is about timing and that's why 95 percent of them fail 90 percent, whatever it is and it is key and ultimately you just have to go for it at some point don't you you can't just think let's wait a bit longer because then someone else will do it and again it's this data and silos that these companies have of all of this stuff i went to a tour in the london contact whatever it was and they were talking about in europe they can tell you they can track every nut and bolt all the way across from wherever it goes as soon as it gets to the uk no one has a clue where anything is because these people do not want to give anything away or their data or whatever it is and it's like we've got so far to come and Again, you look to an American and Europe in, in this case, and they're able to do stuff that we can't do because either one, we don't want it or because privacy is an English thing. I think timing is so key, but there's stuff out there that 
you could just take and make it a little bit better and it, it would be a different company. And that's what your Starlings and your Monzo's revolts have done. They've taken banking and just made it a little bit better. And it came at the right time because there's lots of challenger banks who've come before and failed. Especially in yeah, I mean, for some of those guys, timing in terms of getting in early, scaling it up quickly was important because they got first mover advantage. And with first mover advantage, funding becomes a lot easier. And I think you probably called out in the track that you didn't get enough funding. Now, one of the problems is that most of these business models are based on how much ad spend or marketing spend that you put in. And if you look at Starling, Starling's on TV and you can see they're advertising everywhere, but they're not growing as fast as Monzo. And you look at the customer numbers on Monzo and you're like, wow, they're like twice the size almost right now. Starling made a load of money off the back of government back loans during COVID. So they are profitable at least, and Monzo's heading that way. They hit profitability this year, but their customer numbers are phenomenal. And that's not off the back of heavily advertising, but in the property world, most of the big players are off the back of infrequent customer interaction, which can only be sustained through heavy marketing. You take Zoopla, right move, monopolies, because actually by the time they've grown through heavy funding, which funded marketing, allowed them to stay forefront of customer minds when it comes mm. to selling your home and annually they'll still have to carry on because that's their business model their customers come to them once every nine years on average because that's when people are moving or selling their house that is changing we're now in an era where actually platforms is the new business model for a platform to, to change things it has to have a higher level of customer engagement you can't be transacting once every nine years or if you take something like Trusted Trader and My Builder. That's once or twice a year. You take any other part of the property ecosystem, you're dealing with companies maybe once or twice a year at most. Your gas electricity switching once or twice a year at most. Getting something fixed once or twice a year. The list goes on. And what you need to get to is a high engagement model. And in the high engagement model, you can start to spend less on advertising and spend more on building the customer relationship, which drives more engagement, which means you spend less on marketing. And then your high levels of engagement is what you sell to the ecosystem so that they take part. And now it's the power of many, not the power of one, which is essentially the platform business model. So I think there's going to be disruption in the property world. I do think some models will have to change because they'll be part of a platform that owns a customer journey. And that journey could be buying a house or owning a house or both. Because today, the poor old householder is doing everything themselves. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I work mostly on the B2B side and those tend to be more involved ongoing longer term relationships. And one of the reasons I think I've maybe steered a little bit away from B2C and PropTech is because it is few and far between these touch points with the customer and how do you build engagement if it's going to be mass marketing campaigns that's billboards on the tube and i'm just not about that and what you're talking about then is creating a space where the consumer can manage every touch point from the one place themselves what do you think then is the path to adoption for that service because every homeowner i know myself included hates doing all of that admin but connecting to 
other service providers within their ecosystem, many of which have very little, if any, digital presence. What's the answer then for making that work? I think you have to find a core piece of functionality and leverage that to grow the ecosystem. I know James Deersley will disagree with me, but I still feel that the US is ahead on PropTech than the UK. Maybe the size of the players there, but that market is just way bigger and more attractive than the UK especially for technology. But if we look at that, there's a number of players there that have successfully grown ecosystems large enough that they can create a platform model which drives higher engagement. Here, like I said, we're too fragmented. Things like Trusted Trader, My Builder, low interaction, U-Switch, Money Supermarket, low interaction. Again, they need to look deeper at the journey. It's not about the switch or the fix. It's about the fact that I own a property and I need to do all of these things. So how do I broaden my horizons so that I can interact with a household at least once a week, if not every other day, right? Now, we might not think about our homes on a daily basis, but guess what? 70% of our spend is to do with the house. It's our mortgage or our rent. It's our bills. It's our food shopping, et cetera. So you might think that's the remit of the banks, but maybe that's the remit of the property companies if they want to look after households. And that's something that we're looking at from an Ask Perry perspective is that, as I said, banks are underserving households. And there's 28 million of them in the UK being totally underserved by an account. What's shocking is that an 18-year-old with no property and a 70-year-old that's paid off their mortgage and a 35-year-old with two kids and a mortgage they all have the same account, potentially. There's no differentiation. And what we need is that differentiation. Like I certainly could do with a household account where instead of the utility companies smoothening out my bill, we love standing orders direct debits because it makes our life easier. But we know that they're holding on to our money by us overpaying on them. It'd be better if my account did that, for example. And another gap. If we think about it is, and I've seen PropTechs addressing this in the US, but not in the UK, is that our biggest asset for most of us in the country is our home. And actually, this is a surprisingly low percentage of people that actually have a mortgage. There's quite a lot that's actually held up in equity in property. What access do we have to that equity? Very little. The equity release is targeted at the tail end of your life. But actually, we want it at the front end where if you we're lucky enough to buy a house only four or five years ago. You built up enough equity to get another extension or to maybe invest in something else. But it's really difficult or very expensive for you to release that equity to do something with it. There's another gap that we could be fulfilling for households that's not being done by the property market or a fintech market. And I can go through lots and lots of examples where it's banks or property companies that are not helping the household. I think it's interesting and I completely agree. And I think for me, I'm free marketeer more than anything. And the FCA have always been the bane of my life throughout doing mortgages and especially two mortgage brokerages and all their affordability stuff and stopping people who can easily afford a mortgage, getting it just because it doesn't fit within their calculator. And then the base rate goes up and everyone's panicking and then everyone's going to lose their home. But apparently the affordability calculators that allow you to get a mortgage mean that you can afford it going up to 7%. That's quite clearly not true because obviously it doesn't take into account that inflation, food goes up and there's a war going on and all that sort of stuff. And 
I think the FCA really need to hold their hands up and just come back a bit. I'm not saying go to your 125% mortgages again, but if I wanted to get money out of my house and I've been self-employed for the last six months or whatever, no chance, but I've paid my mortgage for the last 15 years on various different properties. So I am going to pay it, but there's no way I can get any money out of my house despite having a considerable amount of equity in it. And so the whole thing for me is backwards, but that's not going to change with the regulation. I think the FCA and like you say, the government, something needs to be done somewhere, but I'm not the person to do it because I just end up shouting at them because I hate them intrinsically. But uh, yeah, someone somewhere should do something about it who's smarter than me. <laughs> do you need I, I to edit them out, Rich, or are you good with that? Yeah, i with that. Good I mean, question. I think things will be changing because buying and selling a house is as stressful as getting a divorce. And if we can make that easier, what we'll start to see is more transactions. And this is why I say it's these companies that are fearing digitization misunderstand the opportunity. They think that by digitizing it, things get automated. They can't charge as much. Actually, two things will happen. They can charge for the value that they add. And they'll get more transactions. If our experience of buying a house is so painful, that's no wonder why we only move every nine years on average. But I think if the journey is made easier and cheaper, then we'll move more often is one thing. The other thing I think is that banks are only now starting to realize or react to is that certainly when I started, it was a job for life and a mortgage for life. If you got a mortgage with a bank, You stuck with them till you paid it off. But that's all changed. Those products aren't sticky anymore. And so people are switching mortgages much more often. And so we have to find a different way we can keep these customers. And that isn't just by bringing out new products, et cetera. It is about finding a customer journey and owning the journey as opposed to selling the product. And I've seen now some of the lenders wanting to build up ecosystems which is all great and dandy, but the bank has to have a proper role within that for them to be a player within it and keep their mortgages sticking. Because if we look at long-term in the future, where this stuff could be headed, if I look at what's happening with crypts and more general trends about as wanting really things to be easy, the easiest thing would be that I just pay a single fee to somebody and they take care of my bills and repairs and my loans for the house that I want. And and there have been fintechs trying this home as a subscription out, but I think that's the way it's heading. And that will be owning the problem of managing a household. We've already talked about it with cars. We know that in the future with self-driving cars, we'll see the new landlords will be owning fleets of self-driving cars, renting those out. Nobody will buy a car anymore because you'll just pay for each journey. We'll see similar kind of subscription base for properties. But if we walk back from that, then we'll start to see lots of journeys being consolidated. Maybe home repairs consolidated into insurance, maybe financing, combining insurance and the loan and a load of other things. I I find it hilarious that we're in the process of getting our roof repaired. And we spoke to the insurance company and essentially the only way that they would have any involvement in potentially sorting out the repair is if a storm came along and damaged the roof so badly that we needed to make a huge claim and then they would pay out a huge amount of money to do vast repairs. But we were like, yeah, but if you were sensible, you'd split a 500 pound repair cost with us and you don't have to do a big payout in six months and then we don't have to bring the money up front. But no, that doesn't work that way. It's quite bizarre that it's in the best interest of the insurance company 
to be involved in home care and maintenance so that they don't have to make massive payouts for people who have to make these huge claims because they can't afford the money up front to get things fixed. It just seems very backwards to me. Am I being naive to how the system works here? Oh, no. And at the moment, all the cards in the insurer's hands because they know the likelihood of a storm damage in certain areas where there's going to be flood, et cetera, et cetera. And they rely on us not having that information to buy the insurance. But there's a phenomenally large amount of people that don't buy house insurance. So that's a missed opportunity for these guys. But they also think with the way that things are going with open source and data being liberalized, et cetera, is in the future, we'll have our own access to the information and we'll decide whether we need certain covers or not ourselves because it's extortionate. I live in a flood zone. The house had never been flooded. But if my house was 500 meters another way, my insurance would be 2,000 pounds less. So that's already my insurance is two and a half grand. But wow. the house has never been flooded. So this year we decided, okay, we're not going to pay. We're going to just get a policy that has no flood cover. It's never been flooded. So why am I paying for it? Not everyone has access to that kind of information. And once you do, then you make different decisions. And who will lose out will be the insurers. Definitely. Well, look, I've had an idea for about five different startups that I'm going to gonna go with after speaking to you, Dalmesh, as usual. Watch out for those in the near future. They won't be adopted for 10 years, but I've got a really good feeling about one of them. I was amazing to listen to you and get your opinions and things it's fantastic so thank you very much for that it's been really good i appreciate you inviting me on board and it's always fun to talk about this stuff thank you i could have talked for another hour <laughs> great thank you very much thanks for joining us on the prop tech growth podcast to learn more you can find us on linkedin or email proptechpodcast at icloud.com see you next time